I want to start this morning by telling a story that I've told before right here. Um, but I happen to think it, it, it ties in very nicely. It relates really well. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll go through it briefly, partly because it's funny. And this is about to be a heavy message that the enemy has opposing me all week in. Um, and I, I just want to start with something funny first before we get into that. Um, I went to college in Chicago. Uh, and every once in a while, I would take uh, a weekend trip to come home. And I lived about a block away from here when I was in college. And so you need to know this. Driving home from Moody Bible Institute to Walloon Lake, there's literally five turns. Once you get out of Moody's parking lot, there's five turns. Okay, so it's a long, boring, simple drive home. That being said, if you miss any one of those five turns on your way home, it sends you in a horribly wrong direction. Ask me how I know. So here's where it went wrong for me. Exit 34. Exit 34 is just beyond an overpass as you're coming out of I-94 into southern Michigan and, and you get onto 196 going up towards Grand Rapids. The thing about I-94 is if you stay on I-94, it takes you all the way to Detroit. So what was supposed to be a six-hour trip home turned into a very long 10-hour miserable ride from Chicago to Detroit up I-75 back to Walloon Lake. <sighs> Why? Because I missed the small exit because I was sure that the highway I was on was still the correct route. I remember telling myself, this looks familiar. No, this looks familiar. No, this totally looks familiar. Yeah, because you've been to Tiger Games before. If I'm being transparent, it's not even the only time I've missed that exit. Don't take long trips with me. Um, the highway that leads to Detroit is broad and its lanes are wide for the many who choose that way. But the narrow is the exit, exit 34, that leads to Walloon Lake. And the directions are difficult and only once in a while can I find it. Or as Jesus said it, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, its gates is wide for the many who choose that way, but the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. I share that story because over the last couple months, we've been looking at the story, uh, or at, at the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the most studied impactful, um, translated, remembered message that's ever been preached in human history. And uh, this morning, again, we have the beautiful privilege to immerse ourselves in the teachings of Jesus. And what I want to talk about this morning with the time we have together is a part of the Sermon on the Mount that I actually think is going to be extremely relevant and needed and powerful for the church today, for a Christian culture um, that has become so wounded and so divided over the last few decades. Uh, so this morning I'm going to be preaching a message called, It's Not Supposed to Be Easy. It's not supposed to be easy. In fact, if you're taking notes, which I would recommend if you're watching online, there's a little notes tab that you can take notes there as well. Um, if you're taking notes, the title of my message is, It's Not Supposed to Be Easy. Okay, it's not supposed to be Easy, Because at this point in Jesus' sermon, he's reaching the conclusion of everything that he's been talking about. 
for the last few chapters. In fact, the last almost third of Jesus' sermon, he is spending basically asking this question, what will you do now? What are you going to do as a result of what I've been talking about for the last few chapters? How are you going to respond? And so he says it this way. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to stand up and read it together on the screen. Um, But I encourage you to keep your Bible open after that as well. Matthew chapter 7. We're going to go verses 13 to 20. Okay. Chapter 7 verses 13 through 20. It says this. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and a few ever find it. Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? As good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would illuminate Jesus' words to us this morning, that it would be more than information we hear. God, I pray that your spirit would, would transform us on a deep level, that the word would cut to the dividing between bone and marrow, to the very deepest parts of us, God, that your word would separate out delusion from your eternal truth. I pray not only, God, that that our thinking would be transformed today, but that our eternities would be transformed, that you would speak very clearly, and we are open to hearing your voice this morning, God. Amen. You can have a seat, but keep your Bible open. It's going to be very hard for you to hear from God if your Bible is closed. Amen? I want you to notice this first. I want you to notice this first. Verse 13 and 14. Um, It's actually possible. Don't miss this. It's actually possible to think you're on the right way when you're not. Just because it's what everyone else is doing doesn't mean it's right. When Jesus is talking about this narrow way, this narrow gate, he uses a word that doesn't just mean skinny or hard to see. It's it's a word that implies more than just being thin, but also difficult. And and you're going to experience trouble And it compresses you. The narrow gate is hard to see, not only because it's small, but the narrow gate is hard also because it's grueling and difficult to walk. On the the contrary, the Broadway has plenty of space in it, lots of elbow room, in fact, lots of company. Most people are on the Broadway. 
Right? If I asked you, 50% of people, is that most people? 55% of people, is that most people? Technically, yeah. If I said many people, are you thinking 55%? Are you thinking maybe 75%? In other words, few people are on the narrow way. So you have loads of company on the broad way. You won't be constricted for space. And frankly, you're not going to be confused for directions on the broad road. Not because you know where you're going, but because you never ask where you're going. Because everyone's just going that way. That's the broad road. That's the broad road. And Jesus says here that this is one of the greatest dangers to your soul. On the broad road, you have a false security. The great pastor and theologian John Calvin said it this way, and it's in Old English, and it's copious, so I will translate afterwards, but I'll have it on the screen so you can follow along. So if you're up for an intellectual challenge, here we go. Jesus expressly says that many who run along, that many run along the broad road, because rich men ruin each other by wicked examples. For whence does it arise that each of them knowingly and willfully rushes headlong but because while they are ruined in the midst of a vast crowd, they do not believe that they are ruined. The small number of believers, on the other hand, renders many persons careless. It's with difficulty that we are brought to renounce the world and regulate ourselves and our lives by the manners of a few. We think it's strange that we should be forcibly separated from the vast majority as if we were not a part of the human race. But though the doctrine of Christ confines us and hems us in, reduces our life to a narrow road, separates us from the crowd, and unites us to a few companions, as in only a few companions, yet this harshness ought not prevent us from striving to obtain life. That is the crucial difference between the narrow road and the broad road, is where it is going. The whole point of the broad road is that you don't realize you're on the broad road headed towards destruction. It's not going to be shockingly obvious that you're on the broad road. In fact, the enemy does not actually want you to think too hard about where you're going, about the direction that you're taking. He doesn't want you to wonder whether or not you're on the broad or the narrow road. He just wants you to kick back, get comfortable. And just kind of get used to the road you're on. The road that loads and loads and loads of other people are going down. The less that you can think about where you're headed, what the end goal of all of this is, the better. Because that will bring you to ruin. Don't you see it? Don't you see the broad road? It's, it's easy. Everybody else is doing it. Can I say it this way? You should be trembling if your life fits in really well with this culture. That should scare you. If your aim is to fit in and conform with what most people are doing and not make waves... This is the message that it's highly likely that you're on the broad road. And on the contrary, you don't just get 
to the narrow way by accident. Jesus says you got to search for it and find it. And he says that few will. This is the thing about the narrow way. Searching for the narrow way and walking down it actually feels lonely and abruptly isolating. And it kind of makes you wonder, am I doing this right? Because I don't, I, I'm looking at other people for my cues and it doesn't seem like anyone else is doing it this way. Maybe Jesus steps in and says, maybe that's not a bad sign. It's the narrow way. Few find it. And the broad road will make you cry. Actually, the narrow road will initially make you cry. Let me say it that way, right? But here's the thing. Not only does the enemy use feelings of pleasure and, frankly, popularity, because everyone else is doing it this way, to lull people into destruction, here's another tactic that the enemy uses. False prophets to make you think you're fine on the broad road. Verse 16, verse 15, I'm sorry. Beware of false prophets who just come, come disguised as harmless sheep but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. See, at this point, Jesus begins to describe people who look like Christians. Frankly, who look like Christian leaders. Okay? Just get a picture in your mind of what a typical Christian leader would look like. There you go. Now you have a recipe for how to disguise yourself as a sheep. Okay? Now I'm not saying, what I'm not saying is every Christian leader is bad. Obviously, that's not the point. The point is, there's a, there's a profile. It's easy to look a certain way without really having much substance underneath. You can put all the sheep's clothing on that you want, is what Jesus is saying. Right? The, these wolves in sheep's clothing, they give this appearance of promoting authentic Christianity. But you cannot, please don't skim past these verses here. Okay? Please take this very seriously. The enemy sends his people to the church to steal and kill and destroy. How do I know? That's his tactic. That's his thing. That's what he does. He's been doing it for millennia. Steal, kill, and destroy. That's what the enemy comes to do. And he sends his people to do it. False prophets. In fact, and this is a deep dive into a creepy tactic of the enemy. There are nine central tenets of the church of Satan. And to quote, I'm going to bring Jesus' words right back, so don't freak out. But to quote the Satanic Bible... Tenet number nine says this, and I quote, Satan has been the best friend the church has ever had and has kept it in business all these years. That's what he thinks, by the way. But that's his thing. I want to make sure that this just goes on business as usual. You think you're fine. No disciples are being made. No people are actually walking down the narrow way. Just go about doing your religious thing, thinking you're fine. Satan's like, yes, keep going. Don't make waves, just fit in. 
So notice what Jesus says. I'm going to bring it back to Jesus' words here. Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but really are vicious wolves. This is the good news. That he says you can identify them by their fruit. That is the way they act. Right? The, the visible outgrowth reveals what's already on the inside. Now, if you notice, Jesus is using two different metaphors, which I always try to avoid. But I'm like, all right, Jesus, you can do it. He talks about false prophets two different ways. As, as vicious wolves disguised in sheep's clothing and as bad trees pretending to have good fruit. Okay. The common theme between these two is the attempt to deceive, but the inability to do so for very long. All right, think about this. The wolf's goal is to personally gain from the sheep's carelessness and to satisfy his own desires at the expense of the sheep. That's the goal of the wolf. He might get away with his deception for a time, but his true nature becomes apparent when his hunger starts to arise and force him to act like a wolf. In the same way, a thorn bush or a thistle can't actually keep up the deception of being a grapevine or a fig tree for very long, especially when the time for bearing fruit comes. You will know them by their fruit. If God is on the inside, good flows out. If good fruit is not seen in a false prophet, it's because of their real character. A bad life can only come from a self-centered heart. That's the spiritual law of how this works. So what these false prophets say sounds appealing and sometimes even godly, but they consistently lead people down the broad way. It's only natural because they're on the broad way themselves. That's where they're going to lead. That's the kind of fruit that they're going to produce. And so this is what Jesus is getting at. This is the main point that Jesus is trying to, to, to establish here is that no matter what the others say, don't avoid the narrow way. Don't get lulled into the Broadway by your pleasure or by some level of popularity. No matter what the others say, don't avoid the narrow way. Don't avoid the hard way. Don't avoid the grueling way. Don't avoid the difficult way. Don't avoid the narrow way. Now, as you're reading these words, and I hopefully taking them seriously... I'm hoping you feel the tension that it touches. It's a deep concern that a lot of people have about Christianity. Is that when they hear words like this, they think it might be too narrow-minded or excluding of people. Okay? People talk about Christianity that way, especially in the public sector. What I want to do is I want to spend a few minutes talking about that particular tension. Okay? I want to think my way through this with you. This tension of, is Christianity, like, too exclusive? Or maybe to make it personal, are Christians bigoted simply for agreeing with this, for believing this? See, because Christianity calls certain beliefs wrong. It calls certain behaviors immoral. And so it seems like it's restricting human freedom by telling people what they're supposed to think and what they're not supposed to do. 
So when you hear this, what do you do with that? Another concern is that Christians believe they know absolute truth. That absolute truth has been revealed to us. And so people who disagree with me are wrong, and not just wrong, but condemned before God. Which is a great concern that a lot of people will raise. Like, what do you do with that? Do you just throw compassion out the window? Because it's truth, 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 truth. The truth doesn't care about your feelings. To quote modern day prophet. Or do you compromise your deep conviction so that you don't upset people? And I think a lot of people tend to pretend like these exclusive claims of Christianity and the distinctions that Jesus points to, that they don't really matter that much. And so you might hear it something like this. Well, all roads basically lead to God. I, I suppose we're all headed the same way. We're just using different religious terms to describe it. You heard that? Have you said that? Maybe. Here's the thing. Not all roads lead to God. There's over 4,300 different religions in this world. And contrary to popular belief, not all of them are true. In fact, I would go so far as to say it's almost, it's insulting to almost every single one of them to claim that they're the same as all the others. Even more so, it's intellectually lazy. Religious pluralism is lazy thinking. Here's why. Think about this. The statement, all roads lead to God is meant to, is designed, the, 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 the thought process behind this is that I can respect all roads as if they're equally, equally valid. That way I'm not upsetting anybody. Here's the problem. It doesn't respect all roads. Why? It disrespects the roads because those roads don't even claim to lead to God. Let's just take the majority of most people in the world and the, the basic religions that are believed. Well, atheism obviously doesn't claim to lead you to God because it doesn't have a God. You look at Buddhism. As Buddha taught it, it doesn't teach you and me that we're going to heaven. It taught us that we don't even have a self, that the self is an illusion. That we're just like this buildup of karma. And eventually, through the cycle of death and rebirth, eventually we've built up enough karma so that we eventually just become extinguished. It doesn't lead you to God. It just leads you to the nothingness. Hinduism tells you you are God and I am God. Not that like you're a God and that I'm a God and that we're all separate. Like, no, no, no. We are the God. We just think we're different. We're under this illusion of separateness. And eventually we all realize we are God, the one God, and we kind of become one with him because we already are. That's not the same thing as what Islam teaches which is that there's a God out there who's not me, and that I'm not even to have a relationship with him beyond master-servant. In fact, if I die, or when I die, and, and if I perchance might get to heaven, a paradise that he's created for me, he's not even there. He doesn't enter the paradise that he's created for his people. Islam does not teach you that their road leads you to God. And so Christianity makes a claim that we are designed 
to have a relationship with God, which is why Genesis 3 talks about how God walked and talked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, and we eventually are getting back to a place through the redemption of Jesus. We're getting back to a place where we're, we're face-to-face in close connection and close relationship with God again. We're actually designed to be engaged in a close, intimate relationship with the God of everything. And so you've got to see this, that like not even all roads claim to lead to God. So when you say that all roads lead to God, you're not respecting them, you're disrespecting them because you're not taking them seriously. Okay, once you understand that, the idea that they're not all equally valid. Now, here's the thing. It's possible that they're all equally invalid, but it's impossible that they're all equally valid. Tracking with me? Now the question becomes, how do we know that the Christian claim is actually the one that is true? It comes back to two questions. First of all, does God exist? Because if there's no God, then that's pointless. Does God exist? There's a lot of philosophical and scientific um, arguments to reason that there is a God. To have reasonable, solid, sure foundation of a faith that God exists. Let me just give you one. Uh, the very fact that the universe is contingent. Okay? In other words, it depends on something else to explain itself. Ultimately, when you start asking the question, where did that come from? And then where did that come from? And where did that come from? And why does that exist? And why does that exist? Why, 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 where, where, where? Eventually you get back to something that you can't explain where its existence comes from. The reason, the ultimate source, the, the unexplained first cause, that would be God. Even, for example, let's just say you, um, you ascribe to the uh, theory of macroevolution by way of natural selection, which I don't, but let's just, for a minute, let's play with this idea. Let's go back and go, where did that come from? 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 And something banged, like it was a big bang. Where did that stuff come from? The universe is contingent. It has to be explained by something. God. Okay, that's actually the most logical conclusion. I have come to believe for a number of reasons that God exists, but why the Christian God? And probably more specifically, why the narrow way of Jesus? Here's why. Jesus claimed to be God incarnate, who takes away the sins of the world. Then he died on the cross and he rose again from the dead. Now, if he was wrong, he would have stayed dead. If he was right... He not only would have risen from the dead, but everything he said was true and authoritative for my life. Okay? In fact, they asked Jesus a very reasonable question in in John chapter 2 and a couple other places. They said, um, by what authority do you do these things? Like these grand miracles that you're doing, these exclusive claims that you're making. who, Who are you? Who do you think you are? And Jesus says, here's the authority. I'll tell you this. Destroy this temple, meaning his body, and three days later I'm going to rise again. In other words, Jesus says, here's the sign that you will know my exclusive claims are true. I'm going to die and I will rise again three days later. Now, that's a very specific statement for Jesus to say. So if he died and stayed dead, we therefore would have no reason to believe anything he said. 
And yet, if he died and rose again, we have every reason to believe. So, you want to ask why Jesus and not Muhammad or not Buddha or not Confucius or not Krishna? Here's the reason. Jesus died. Jesus claimed divinity. Then he died on a Roman cross and he rose again from the dead. And guys who rise from the dead tend to have credibility. So this is the question. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Now you, you can have all these theological and philosophical and scientific arguments against the Christian faith. You want to take it out in one fell swoop, just aim at the resurrection. You have to ask, did Jesus actually rise from the dead? And what I want to just briefly do, touch on is four strong facts. In other words, scholars, whether they're the Christian or atheist or whatever, who studied the historical Jesus, they say these four facts are true about the historical Jesus. Number one is um, his death by crucifixion. You obviously have to have a death before resurrection. That's kind of how that works. And so uh, John, Tom, John Dominic Croson says that um, his death by crucifixion is as sure a fact as any there ever could be. Historically speaking, it's hard to disprove. It's hard to make a claim without looking ignorant that Jesus of Nazareth did not die on a Roman cross. Okay, that claim is a verifiable historical fact. Second claim is you have the appearance to his disciples after his death. Okay? Skeptical non-Christian historians say that the disciples saw something that convinced them they, that they saw. That they then became to believe. Not, not something, they didn't see something, uh, uh, the surviving Jesus who faked his death and skirted on through. They didn't see the escaping Jesus. No, no, no. They saw the dead Jesus. They proved his death uh, um, scientifically. Stabbed him in the side. Water started coming out. His body died and started rotting for three days. Okay, any morgue would have declared him dead. And then they saw him living again. The actual resurrected Jesus. Now, we see the appearance of Jesus to his disciples, but even beyond that, because that seems to be a biased claim, even though it's testified historically, you'd be like, yeah, but like they, they kind of wanted to see that, which I could get into why that, that, that matters. But okay, you want to go beyond bias? You want to go to someone who had no reason to believe Jesus rose from the dead? In fact, every reason to claim that he didn't. You have skeptics who base their life on the claim that it's not possible. You take contemporary skeptics like James or the Apostle Paul. James was a skeptic. You can read this in the Gospels. Paul was an enemy of the Christian faith. And you ask any trial lawyer. Okay, if you're in a court of law and you're trying to disprove a claim, ask any trial lawyer what kind of witness you want. You talk about a witness who changes their story. This witness who is so diametrically opposed and viciously against any claim of what you're saying is possibly true, okay? Very violently disagrees in the sense that they're like the worst witness that you could have on the other side of you, but then suddenly they switch their position because they have come to realize that you're right. What do you do with that witness? You put them on the stand and you let them talk for days and days and days. This is the kind of witness you want. This is the best kind of eyewitness testimony. It's someone who thought you were so wrong and now believes you're right, but it costs them everything to say so. That you're not just making it up. This is the exact kind of witness you have in the Apostle Paul. It cost Paul everything. He was an enemy of the Christian faith. 
gave his life to Jesus, became a champion of the Christian faith, and he says, I saw him rise, raised from the dead with my own two eyes. And if he didn't, if he knew he was lying, why would you willingly go through so much trouble and your eventual death for something you knew was fake? The conversion of contemporary skeptics is a strong fact of history. And obviously the third one is this, the, or the fourth one is this, the empty tomb. We know where the empty tomb is. Joseph of Arimathea's, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. I stood in it. We know that it was empty and that the fact that the first people, that this, this document called the New Testament claims the first people to even verify this were people who had no credibility as witnesses. In this culture, women were not considered verifiable, credible as witnesses, okay? It would be like if somebody told you the news that something crazy happened, and you're like, who told you that? And you're like, TMZ, BuzzFeed. You know, like that's the kind of, you left. That's what people would have done when you heard a witness testimony from a woman in this culture, which, by the way, is not fair. And Jesus was paramount at elevating the status of women. That's a different point. Um, you, this is what's called an embarrassing admission. And in a, in a historical document would not necessarily include a, a fact like that that was verified by such an, um, uh, uh, um, a witness that was not taken seriously unless it was true. This is what's called an embarrassing admission. Okay? And we, we know where the tomb was, and we know that it was three days later that the tomb was empty. The resurrection of Jesus, here's the thing, it's not only a sword, it's also a shield. Okay, it's a shield because it defends against the attacks of Christianity. If you want to take out Christianity, attack the resurrection. It's also a sword because it means if you, if this is true, then every other claim, doesn't matter what claim it is, any other claim, about Christianity is not true. Any claim that denies the resurrection can't possibly be true. But this one is true and it excludes every other way. And it excludes every other way, not in a way that's like scary, but in a way that like includes everybody. Because if the resurrection is true, it means that he was more than a man he actually was who he said he was, God. And he came to do what he, came, what he said he was going to do, which was redeem people, redeem mankind into a right relationship with God. If the resurrection is true, it includes you. So here's the question. If, if we can understand this about Christianity, that it makes sense that it is a one exclusive narrow way. How do we follow this man who embodied truth and grace? How do we hold on to truth and live with grace? Um, I grew up in a Baptist church, and I'm very grateful for that heritage. A um, number of wonderful people who were examples and testimonies to my life. But we did kind of have a way of thinking about ourselves. Like, we're kind of the only ones on the narrow way. In fact, I, I remember a lot of sermons being preached about how wrong everybody else was. And this is a true story. 
the street corner that our church was on. One corner had a Catholic church, one corner had a Jewish synagogue, one corner had a Christian science center, and one corner had our Baptist church. And like we knew abstractly that one day in heaven, there's going to be more people than just the Baptists, that we'd be surprised by a few people who were there, right? We knew someday there would be probably a few Lutherans, you know, represented by Martin Luther. We knew someday there'd probably be a few Wesleyans, you know, represented by John Wesley. We'd definitely there'd be some Baptists represented by Jesus. But if you carefully examine the life and the teachings of Jesus, you're going to notice what seems like a very strange paradox. That Jesus makes statements that strike us as outrageously exclusive. He was very narrowly devoted to his father. He didn't present his teachings as optional suggestions for a better way of living. He claimed to know how things are. He claimed to know what matters most. That his teachings aren't just wise or just helpful. They're true. And yet, this man who made claims that are like breathtakingly exclusive, when he was with people, pursued connections, relational connections that were scandalously inclusive. He deliberately touched a leper that no one would touch. And he allowed a, a known prostitute to bathe his feet with her tears and then wipe her Wiped them dry with her unbound hair. He commended a Roman centurion. Like they were the enemy. They were the oppressors. Publicly, he, he ate with despised tax collectors. Who, who is this man? It's like the more narrow he was in his devotion to God, the more broad he was in his love for people. Why would it work like that? Because i got to be honest, I think a lot of us have missed that. I'm going to first speak into a mirror because I was very convicted reading this. It's so easy to want to compromise deep, profound convictions about Christianity at the same time limit who I interact with. I want to live in the tension of this for a moment. I think pretty often we're lax in our devotion to God. We're not wholehearted. We're half-hearted. And yet, we're fairly narrow in our relationships with other people. And Jesus was intensely and relentlessly narrow in his devotion to the Father and extremely broad in his relationships with people. Why is that? Why would it work like that? possible that the truth that Jesus brought explains the life that Jesus led. Maybe it's possible to find deep and profound truth and, and offer broad acceptance. Maybe those two things aren't actually mutually incompatible. Maybe they're actually connected. Maybe they're inextricable. Because here's the thing. The invitation is open to everybody. To enter the narrow gate. And while he was here on planet earth. The incarnate Jesus. The incarnate word of God. Made it his mission. To bring his life to as many people as possible. 
And, and yet, claiming, I would be deluding you if I said that there was another way. It's clearly not easy. There's not a whole lot of people who even try. But there is a power in living a life that holds unwaveringly to the revealed word of God, the Bible. But living a life that is, looks incredibly like the incarnate word of God, that is Jesus Christ. And saying, you matter to God, and I'm going to prove it by sacrificing my life for you. So no matter what others say, don't avoid the narrow way. There's life on the other end, right? There's life at the destination of the narrow way. So briefly, what I want to do is I want to help you hang on to these three challenges of Jesus and put them into practice in your life, okay? Three things that I think Jesus speaks to. The first one is enter by the narrow gate. And the challenge is this, to make sure you've actually made a conscious personal decision to put your faith in Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. I am convinced there are those here today who are a lot like the crowds and the bystanders who are listening on as Jesus taught his disciples. You've been coming to church, we're listening online, and you've been receiving the word of God but you've never made a personal conscious decision to follow Jesus yourself. You haven't put your faith in Jesus personally. You've just been surrounding yourselves with the faith of other people. And today I want to challenge you. And in a moment, I'm going to ask that you might do it publicly. I want to challenge you to publicly make the conscious and personal decision to enter the narrow gate and follow Jesus yourself. It's, it's one thing to agree about certain facts about who Jesus is and what he's done. But can I be straight with you? Like, the demons believe all those facts. In fact, they probably believe more facts than you do. They have a better theology than you do. Here's where it gets different. The Bible says there's three components to saving faith. A, admit you're a sinner. Right? Repent of your sin. Turn away from the, the broad way, this way that's all about you. And enter the narrow gate, a way that's all about Jesus. It's not about you. You're no longer the king or the queen of your life. It's hard. There's life and there's joy and there's peace on the other end. But your feet get hurt. And you fall down, and you're lonely, and it's not easy. Admit you're a sinner, repent of your sin. Number two, believe that Jesus died and rose again for you, to pay the price for your sin, to forgive you of your sin. That's how much God loves you, that he himself sacrificed his son. And he, he put all of the penalty and the wrath and the consequence for your sin on Jesus so you wouldn't have to bear it because you couldn't bear it. And in your place, Jesus died so that you could be forgiven by God. And then he rose again to give you new life. And the Bible says you need to believe that that was for you and that was enough to make you right with God. 
Admit you're a sinner, believe in Jesus, and number three, confess him as Lord. This is where it becomes personal. Turn away from the broad way. Turn away from your own way and let Jesus be in charge of what you say and what you do and who you become. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that when you've done this, it, that will result in a life that produces good works and bears good fruit. Here are the strong words of Jesus. If you don't see this in your life, it's possible you're still on the broad road. Here's the invitation. Make the personal conscious choice today to follow Jesus yourself. At the end of the service, myself and um, some of the pastors and some of the elders and even the prayer corner will be available to chat with you about this. But I want to ask you to raise your hand if this is you. To raise your hand if, if you say, I don't know if I'm on the narrow way. Or in fact, I, I know I'm not. I have not put my faith in Jesus and followed him myself. I've just kind of been relying on the faith of other people around me. I want to invite you to raise your hand with everybody looking around. It's not supposed to be easy. It's not supposed to be simple or convenient. It's the narrow way. But if that's you, I would love to chat with you. One of the pastors, elders, the prayer corner would love to chat with you about what it looks like to start following Jesus. Would anybody here be brave enough to say, and I'm just, I'm going to be courageous and say, I'm going to do this and I know everyone's looking around because today is day one that I enter the narrow way. Anybody be courageous enough to raise your hand and just say, that's me. I'm not going to make you come down an aisle or anything right now. I would just be conscious to look out for you and try to connect with you and talk with you and pray with you. Anybody say that that's me? I need to enter the narrow way. If you're not raising your hand yet and you still feel the conviction, or maybe you're online and you hit the, I want to take the next steps button, um, I'm still going to be available. I'm going to be right down here after the service. Please come up and chat with me, okay? Because the truth of the matter is, this is the most eternally significant admission that you could possibly make. That I think I'm on the broad way. So here's the first thing. Number one, enter the narrow gate. Number two, follow Jesus on the narrow way. The gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and few ever find it. Uh, pastor and author Francis Chan says something really powerful here. In fact, I'm just going to let him say it for the next few minutes. My church for like 15 years, ever since it started. I thought I was one of the key guys. And, and he comes to me, you know, just, just not too long ago. And he goes, you know, Francis, here's the problem with you. He goes, you think everyone needs to be this radical. You, you think that Jesus calls us all to be radicals. He, he, goes, he goes, you know, you, you think there's just these, these few radicals. And, and, and he goes, you know, there's this, you got to understand, there's, a, there's this middle road where, where, you know, people, you know, they profess Christ and they do some good things. And it's like you're, 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 you're neglecting that whole middle road. Did you guys know that? There's a narrow road that leads to life. There's a wide road that leads to destruction. And now there's this new middle road. <laughs> See, I didn't know that. 
like a carpool lane. You, you, it's just this, this weird new road we created where you can just do some good things in the name of Jesus and still hold. It, it's, it's, you know, it, you know you just go, you're serious right now. You're dead serious. You found a middle road. I, I, you guys, I, I, I'm not a real, you got to understand, those who know me know that I'm not a real complicated guy. I, I, I tend to think like a kid. I tend to just go, wow, that seems like what it says. You know, I, I, I remember when, uh, when I was a kid, we used to play this game called Follow the Leader. Remember that? I mean, some of you guys don't because you just played video games. And, and you, you, but... We play this game called Follow the Leader, where the leader, you know, flaps his wings and you do the same thing. And it was easy. You, you just do what the leader did. And it's so weird how in the church we've twisted this. And follow Jesus is a different game. You don't really have to flap your wings. You don't accent. You can just sit there and do it in your heart. Seriously. You know, when I read the scriptures, it says, man, whoever claims to, to, to know him must, must walk as Jesus walked. But we go, well, no, I'm doing that in my heart. You're like the kid sitting on the recliner going, no, I'm flapping my wings in my heart. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. It's, 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 it, we, we distort things because of what we want. You know, remember, remember Simon says? That was easy, right? Simon says, pat your head. But Jesus says it's a totally different game. If Jesus says something, you, you, you just have to memorize it. That's what we do in the church. If Jesus said, you just got to study it. You, you, just gotta, you, you just have to be able to quote it in the Greek. You, you just, it's, 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 it has nothing to do with, hey, Jesus says. You go, look, look, when my daughter you know, comes to me and I go, look, go clean your room. She knows better than to come back a few hours later and goes, Dad. I memorized what you said. <clears throat> I can say it in Greek. <laughs> in fact, some of my friends, we're gonna, they're going to come over and we're going to do a little study on what it would look like to clean my room. It just, it's not making sense to me. And, and all I can say is that we're twisting things. We do. We do in the church. And we, we create this little way where we don't actually have to do what Jesus called. I almost hesitated preaching this message because of how convicting it is to me. The Bible's clear. Your life is going to display the fruit of the person that you're surrendered to. The 16th century reformers had this saying. They said, um, while we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, the faith that saves is never alone. In other words, true faith is going to result in a changed life. So you might be sitting here and going like, I don't see the fruit in my life. I'm freaking out. I, I, don't, see, I don't see the visible outgrowth of my faith in my life. I just I hear what Jesus says and I study it and I memorize it, but I don't, I, don't, I don't see it played out in my life. I fit in really well on the broad road. The answer is not to look at the end of your dried up twigs and start squeezing out some fruit by way of your own personal effort. The answer is to examine your faith. If your life is not demonstrating fruit, there's something wrong with the root. 
There's something wrong with your faith. Give your life to Jesus. Surrender control to him. Let him be in charge 100% without reservation. See, it's one thing to say that Jesus is my Lord. It's another thing to actually every day believe that he's your Lord. Surrender to his authority over you and through his strength, through his enabling, do what he says. Your faith is seen in how you follow Jesus on the narrow way. The faith is in the following. So enter the narrow gate, follow Jesus on the narrow way. And the third thing is this, and I'll wrap it up with this. Check the fruit. Check the fruit. Be aware of who are the primary prophets in your life. I just think about this. Maybe the top 20 musicians or podcasts, the most recent movies or video games, the books, if you're a reader, that fill up your shelves, the social media accounts that you spend the most time consuming content from. For those of you who are younger who are on TikTok, I had someone come to me the other day, a few months ago, and it's like, oh, TikTok is terrible. All it is is a bunch of, you know, young girls dancing, you know, seductive dances. And I'm like, TikTok's an algorithm. Translation, there's a mathematical formula that calculates what you watch and then just gives you more of that. Maybe don't tell me that TikTok is just a bunch of dancing girls next time, because that's a little too revealing for you. Right? Like, what would the algorithm say about your, your social media consumption? Who's, here's another one. Here, who's the last person that changed your mind? What's the, what's the fruit of that person's life? So these, these are the leading voices in your life. This is what's inside your mind. Those are the people that will have the most profound influence on, your, on who you become. Have, here's the question you need to ask. I'm not saying any of those things are inherently bad. But the question you need to ask is, are those people producing good fruit or bad fruit? Why? Because you're the fruit. It matters. What enters your mind? What goes through your eyes? What goes through your ears? I'll finish with this phrase. This narrow way is not easy. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not easy. It's hard, it's difficult, it's compressed. And not everyone is going to go this way, even though everyone is invited to do so. The narrow gate is not locked. So don't expect massive applause and abundant company. But you do have the applause and approval of your Heavenly Father. And you do have his word and Holy Spirit as your guide. So no matter what others say, don't avoid the narrow way. Right? Check the fruit, enter the gate, follow on the way. But no matter what others say, don't avoid the narrow way. Church, that is Jesus' message for you this morning. Let's pray. I pray, Lord, that as we hear your word and, and take you seriously and grapple with these heavy, heavy, profound truths, Spirit, would you, would you speak so potently, powerfully into our hearts this morning? I pray that we would not people, be people who are faking it. I pray that we would not be people who are comfortable on the broad way. I pray that we would not miss heaven by an inch because we thought 
that someone else's faith was good for us. Oh God, I pray that you would draw us close into a personal relationship with you and and an all-in commitment to living for you. I pray that we wouldn't play church games, but that we would be the church, your vehicle for transforming this world. Amen.